Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. It's the second in a special two-part series about the Jewish imperative to fix the world. In light of recent events, we dedicate this class to the terrible tragedy surrounding the death of George Floyd. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Okay, so yesterday we went through a couple of sources, and uh, we ended up um, in a spot where we are now talking about tikkun olam, and where are the sources in the Torah that speak about, where are the sources in the Torah, welcome Rabbi Ezra, that speak to the issue of fixing the world, making it a better place. So I want to refer you to yesterday's um, source sheet. I don't know if Binyamin came on and posted the source sheet. There it is. It is there, actually. A link just came on to the source sheet. Just click on that link and um, open, if you can, to page um, two. Yeah, open to page two. So on page two, we have um, a very important pasuk from the Torah. God said, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. And the great Nachmanides, the great Kabbalist and commentator on the Torah, understood what does it mean to subdue the earth, God tells Adam. Vikivshuha. So look at where it's underlined. He says to build, to uproot that which is planted, and to mine copper from its mountains and the like. So the Ramban is emphasizing mining copper from mountains. And basically using the physical world, not abusing. You're not permitted. You should just know to cut down trees for no purpose or no reason. In Hebrew, it's called baltashchis, um, wasting um, precious natural resources. We do believe in environmentalism. And at the same time, well, I want to welcome everyone that's come on. We've got 30 people already. Beautiful group. Thank you for joining everyone. So we have um, a mitzvah to use the world for our purposes, but not to abuse the world. And Nachmanri says, that we can use, we can uproot that which is planted and we can mine copper for mountains. And Rav Salvechik, going deeper into this in his famous book, The Lonely Man of Faith, trying to reconcile uh, seemingly contradictory statements in Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 2, he explains that there are really two parts to who we are existentially. There's an Adam 1 in us and there's an Adam 2. Adam 1, which is really the way Adam is described in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, is the part of us that wants to make the world a better place, the drive we have to conquer the world, to put a man on the moon, to build hospitals, to create cures, right? How helpless do we feel without a vaccine to corona? How helpless do we feel when um, an injustice takes place in our society, as we're experiencing now? And and making the kinds of changes that need to be made. So the Torah says, fill the world and subdue it. Go from a state of helplessness 
to asserting some kind of control over the environment. And if you look at the quote there, um, the Rav puts it, to go from a brute's existence to an existence of dignity. Take a look. Dignity is unobtainable. See page two on the bottom. As long as man has not reclaimed himself from coexistence with nature and has not risen from a non-reflective, degrading, helpless instinct of life to an intelligent, planned, and majestic one. Dignity of man cannot be realized as long as he has not gained mastery over his environment. And he continues to say in source number 13 on the bottom of page 2, Man of old who could not fight disease and succumbed in multitudes to yellow fever or any other plague with degrading helplessness could not lay claim to dignity. Only the man who builds hospitals discovers therapeutic techniques and saves lives is blessed with dignity. Man of the 17th and 18th centuries who needed several days to travel, he says, from Boston to New York was less dignified than modern man who attempts to conquer space, boards a plane at a New York airport at midnight and takes several hours and, and takes several hours later a leisurely walk along the streets of London. Hence, Adam I is aggressive, he is bold and victory-minded, his motto is success and triumph over the cosmic forces. He engages in creative work trying to imitate his, his, um, his maker. So this is a very important idea of tikkun olam, which is that God created and charged Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to not simply live and be, but to exert a kind of mastery over the natural world. Now, who can think? I'll give you a minute to respond. Who can think of, of one day of the week when we're not supposed to express that mastery over the world, when we're not supposed to subdue the forces of nature? In fact, the things that we're specifically supposed to refrain from doing on Shabbat are, are, are things that we do that show our mastery over the universe. We pull back one day of the week to demonstrate that we are not the end all and be all, and there is a God and we are a creature. Rabbi Ezra was speaking about this last night. I'm just pulling my phone up a bit because it needs to be a little higher. Stay with me. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. Oh, I made it too high. Okay. <laughs> Alright, perfect. So, um, so that is a very important uh, source to use for making the world a better place, that we believe existentially God created us to master and to subdue the, the world and to use it for our own betterment and purposes, except on Shabbos. Okay, take a look at the next source. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. You shall not pervert the justice. Source number 14 on your handout, page 3. You shall not pervert the justice due to a stranger or to the fatherless nor take a widow's garment in pawn. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, and therefore I command you to observe this commandment. Now, this is a very famous verse from the book of Deuteronomy, and Rav Salavechik on this says, take a look at source 15, whenever the Torah wants to impress upon us the mitzvah of having compassion for the oppressed in society, it reminds us of similar helplessness and lowly status during our bondage in Egypt. The stranger in particular personifies the helpless one who has no friends, no family or friends to intercede on his behalf. For this reason, as the Talmud indicates, 
the Torah exhorts us in 36 scriptural references to treat the stranger kindly. It says it 36 times in the Torah. You shall love the stranger. And Rav Salvechik says that whenever the Torah wants to remind us to be compassionate and to be sensitive to those who are on the outside, who are coming in, the helpless, those who don't have friends or colleagues to intercede on their behalf, the Talmud indicates, uh, the, the, the Torah tells us, remember the Exodus, remember that you started out as a slave yourself. And um, the Rav continues to say that the Egyptian bondage was of great value since it served to implant within us the qualities of kindness and mercy. And even goes far as to say how Jews, even alienated from their religious practice, generally speaking, tend to be more responsive to non-Jews and to causes affecting mankind. I mean, just take a look at what's happening now. The Jewish community is quite vocal and has been for decades involved in the civil rights movement. And I know, and I've been listening to some uh, commentary from some that maybe the Jewish community or parts of the Orthodox community are not doing enough. And I hear that. We're going to be discussing this tonight, actually in our panel discussion, 8.30 tonight. I'll be interviewing uh, Eric Adams, and a uh, who is a, a borough assemblyman from uh, Brooklyn, as well as another uh, great black leader who is a, a pastor in Stamford, Connecticut. And we're going to talk a little about this. What else could the Jewish community be doing? But generally speaking, there seems to be something about the Jew that always feels compelled to be involved in these types of situations. And the Rav says, and although this might sound somewhat chauvinistic, he goes on to say that this is why certain crimes, like murder and physical violence, are proportionally rare in the Jewish community. He says that we are enticed by other crimes, like embezzlement or cheating in financial matters. But homicide is quite rare in the Jewish community, and the Rebbe believe that that has something to do with how we began as a people. Since we started out as an enslaved people, we therefore developed a sort of sensitivity towards the oppression of others. Compassion, the Rav says, is something all human beings, of course, have the capacity for, since all mankind is created in God's image, but it's a capacity that can be suppressed. Avdut Mitzrayim, he says, the oppression of Egypt transformed the people, transformed Jews into a people whose compassion would be a necessity and not merely a capacity a necessity, and not merely a capacity. Um, okay, so I want to get into a couple of other sources because there's just so much on this topic that we could talk about. And I want to share with you a story, actually, I didn't realize this, but Rabbi Ezra shared it last night. And if you were watching our basic Judaism class about God last night, then you might have heard this from Rabbi Ezra but it's part of my class on uh, Tikkun Olam. And it's a story about kindness and chesed and uh, a really beautiful connection between uh, Jews and African-Americans that I think is important to recount at this time. Um, this is from a book written by Stephen Carter. Um, Stephen Carter ended up becoming... Um, a book he wrote, by the way, called Civility, 
And he tells a story how in 1966, his African-American family moved to this white neighborhood in Washington. He was 11. He was just a kid, and he vividly remembers sitting on the porch with his two brothers and sisters, waiting to see how they'd be greeted in this new neighborhood. And everybody just basically walked by and either stared at them or just ignored them. No one said hello, until finally this one white woman, their neighbor, walked over to the kids and with a broad smile said, welcome, and brought the children something to drink and cream cheese and jelly sandwiches. And that moment, uh, Carter said, changed his life. Because he realized at that moment when race relations in the United States were even 10 times worse than they are today, he realized that a black family could feel at home in a white neighborhood. Uh, Carter, who later became a professor of law at Yale, wrote a book called Civility, in which he speaks of that woman who brought him the cream cheese and jelly sandwiches. And by the way, um, her name was Sarah Kestenbaum. And he writes that she was a religious Jew. And in the Jewish tradition, Carter says, in the, he wrote this in his book called Civility, Civility is called chesed. Chesed, the doing act of acts of kindness, which is in turn derived from the understanding that human beings are made and created in the image of God. Read with me on page three, the very last paragraph, source number 18 on page three on the bottom. Nothing in contemporary secular conversation calls us to give up anything truly valuable for anyone else. Only religion offers a sacred language of sacrifice, selflessness, and awe that enables believers to treat their fellow citizens as fellow passengers. But even if religion is the engine of civility, it has too few practitioners, which is why those who are truly moved by it to love their fellow human being are so special. I learned that truth in 1966, and to this day I can close my eyes and feel on my tongue the smooth, slick sweetness of the cream cheese and jelly sandwiches that I gobbled on that summer afternoon when I discovered how a single act of genuine and unassuming civility can change a life forever. Really beautiful. Now, what is the Torah source for chesed, for acts of loving kindness? So take a look at source number, number 19. Rav Chama said in the name of Rav Chanina, excuse me, Rav Chama was the son of Rav Chanina, said, what does the Torah mean when it says, you shall walk after the Lord your God? It's a famous verse from the book of Deuteronomy in the, in the five books of Moses. It says, you shall walk after the Lord your God. Is it possible for a human being to walk after the divine presence? Does it not say for the Lord your God is a consuming fire? Rather, the meaning is you shall walk after the attributes of God. Just like God clothed the naked, when did God clothe the naked? When he clothed Adam and Eve. Just as God visits the sick, when did God visit the sick? When he visited Abraham after his circumcision. So too you should clothe the naked. So too you should visit the sick. Just like God comforts the mourners, right, after the death um, Actually, that's talking about the death of Aaron. When Aaron, not Aaron, when Aaron's two sons died, God came to see how Aaron was doing. He paid a, a divine shiva call, if you will. And so too, just as God buries the dead, he buried Moshef, 
We too must bury the dead. We too must pay a shiva call. We too have to, we, we follow God's a very important theme in re- religious literature called imiteo dei, which means um, imitating God. And that is a very, very important um, source. And if you look at the next source, very, very um, ha- um, wait one second, 61a. Yeah, um, we, we, we basically, we have all of, uh, all of these things are subsumed under the biblical adage to love your neighbor as yourself. Take a look at source number 20. You shall not take revenge. You shall not bear grudge against the members of your people, but rather you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Rambam, the great Maimonides, interprets that the following. He says it's a positive mitzvah of the rabbis to visit the sick, meaning these are rabbinically ordained mitzvot, but they all fall under the category of love thy neighbor. Because the Torah doesn't say what love thy neighbor means. But the Rambam says it means following in God's ways. And these are the ways, that, these are the things that we see God doing, and therefore we repeat them. It's a positive mitzvah for the rabbis to visit the sick, to bring comfort to the mourners, to help remove the dead from the home, to help bring the bride to her wedding, to accompany guests into your home, to participate with all of their needs. These are the physical acts of kindness, and there are no limits to what one must do to fulfill these requirements. Even though all of these commandments are from the sages, they're all included in the command, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the things that you wish others to do for you, you must do for your your brother in Torah and in mitzvah. And I listed some of the items that we just read. Visiting the sick, right, we know is a huge mitzvah. Unfortunately, a lot of people were prevented from doing that during this period of corona because of the quarantining, particularly people in hospitals attending to the dead. That was also quite challenged. A lot of funerals that took place during this period of time, very few people could actually attend the actual burial or funeral. Comforting the mourner. I just paid another shiva call on Zoom to somebody, unfortunately. Couldn't come in person, but we're still doing these things. Bringing joy to the bride and groom. I've performed a couple of weddings and I'm preparing a speech now for my niece's wedding. I wish a mazel tov to my niece, Lauren, who's getting married to Joseph Amar uh, in just two days and unfortunately cannot travel to the wedding. It's out of state, but I'm going to be speaking and um, preparing right now some words to share under the chuppah virtually. So there's still ways of bringing a joy to a bride and a groom, even if you're not physically there. Hospitality to guests. I don't know how you can do that one in Corona. Kindness to the widow, orphan, and strangers, and pursuing peace. Take a look at the next source, source 22. The Talmud tells us that, and this is very important, all of these things um, relate to Jews, or do not relate to Jewish people per se, meaning we have an obligation to do these things for fellow Jews, but it is still considered part of love thy neighbor to be able to do this for people that are not Jewish as well. Take a look at the next source, Talmud 61a, Tana Rabbanan. The rabbis taught, that we provide financial support to the Gentile poor along with the Jewish poor. And we visit the Gentile sick along with the fellow Jews. 
who are sick. I forbid. The covering may say Nachmim and may say Yisrael, and we bury the Gentile dead along with the Jewish dead, because these are ways that foster harmony. Now, some understand that last phrase, Mipnei Darche Shalom, is just to keep good relations. Not, not that there's a value in and of itself, um, but the majority of the commentators, based on the Yerushalmi, which is the uh, Israeli uh, version of the Talmud, the Israel version of the Tosefta, view this Talmud as requiring us to assist Gentiles independent of helping fellow Jews. I always like to say that charity starts at home, but it doesn't end at home. And that's a whole big debate as to how much of your charity money should go to a Jewish cause versus a non-Jewish cause. I always argue just very practically that we're a very small people and we need to support our own institutions first and foremost. But it's not as though if you donate to a non-Jewish institution, it's not considered staka. It is considered staka, but um, again, charity begins in the home, but doesn't end there. Um, take a look on, uh, if you want another source on this particular issue, um, take a look at source uh, 23. Interesting, Maimonides says that even with respect to Gentiles, our sages admonish us to visit their sick, bury their dead along with the dead of Israel, maintain their poor as well as the Jewish poor in the interests of peace. Behold, it is written, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all of his works. It is also written, its ways are ways of pleasantness and this passer of peace. That's an English translation for the song that we always sing when we put the Torah back in the Aaron Kodesh. Um, uh, the ways of the Torah are ways of Noam, of pleasantness. And all of its paths are of peace. Um, it's interesting, take a look at uh, number four, 24. Another quote from Salvechik on the same issue. During the Yom Kippur services, our prayerful concerns are almost exclusively with our own people. We're often accused of being parochially clannish. This may be true, for otherwise we would have succumbed long ago considering our historical vulnerability. But this self-involvement is not hermeneutically exclusionary. The universal emphasis is prominent in all of our prayers, right? We pray for everyone, in scripture, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, and when opportunities were, ben were benign and conditions prop propitious, we have contributed far more than our proportionate share to the welfare of humanity. And that's a very important idea that, that um, Rav Salvechik wants to remind us of how much the Jew has and continues to contribute to the broader society, which we spoke about more yesterday. It is therefore characteristic, he says, look where it's underlined on page five of your handout. It is therefore characteristic of the universal embrace of our faith that as the shadows of dusk descend on Yom Kippur Day, after almost 24 hours of prayer for Israel, the Jew is alerted through the book of Jonah prior to the closing of the heavenly gates that all humanity is God's children. Because what is it about the book of Jonah? Do you remember what we read on Yom Kippur in the afternoon? We take out the book of Jonah and we read it. The book of Jonah is the story of a great Jewish prophet, Jonah, who is sent by God to get the people of Nineveh, who are not a Jewish people, they're not, uh, it's not a Jewish city, to get them to do tshuva, to get them to repent and to improve their ways. 
We need to restate the universal dimension of our faith, says Rabbi Soloveitchik. Okay. Um, and by the way, just going back to Chesed, didn't mention this before, this is why we just read on Shavuos last week, Megillat Ruth, the story of the Book of Ruth, because Chesed, kindness to everyone, is so central in Judaism. Chesed, the kindness of Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, not to leave her alone. And then the Chesed of Boaz, the landowner, the wealthy landowner that he extended to Ruth to allow a stranger to glean his field. Um, and this chesed, says Rav Salvechik, as we're seeing in these quotes, is our responsibility to extend for the welfare of all mankind. And this point is very powerfully driven home, says Rav Salvechik, by the fact that we read the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, which is talking of, not about a Jewish city, but that we are concerned with the moral uprightness, not just of fellow Jews, but of all human beings. Uh, two interesting quotes for you to read on your own because it's starting to get a little late, and I want to cover a little more. Uh, and that is uh, on the bottom of page 5, it's source 25. Uh, really interesting uh, articles that I, excerpts from articles, one from Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, and the other one from Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. Rav Aaron Soloveitchik was the brother of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, and Rav Aaron Lichtenstein was the son-in-law of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, two huge scholars in their own right, who wrote about the relationship that we have as Jews to our non-Jewish brothers and sisters. What responsibility do we have to them to take care of them and their needs as well? Very relevant for what's going on today. So when you get a chance, read those on your own. I want to uh, finish up by... Um, Well, I'll finish up with two points. Uh, my teacher, Rabbi Shachter, Rabbi J.J. Shachter, my beloved mentor and teacher, who authored an important article on this issue, ends with the question, if indeed we have a religious obligation <clears throat> to all people, then how much of a charity priority do we have to non-Jewish causes and needs? Either way, chesed, we know, is paramount in Judaism. And it's a point driven home by the following remark by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who said that there are two seas in Israel, the Dead Sea and the Sea of the Galilee. The Sea of the Galilee has fish, has birds, beautiful vegetation. The Dead Sea is exactly what it sounds like. It has no life at all. Yet both seas are fed by the same Jordan River. The difference is, is that the Sea of the Galilee receives water at one end and gives water out at the other. The Dead Sea receives, right, from the Jordan River, right? But the Jordan ends there. It's literally the end. It's actually the lowest point on Earth. Do you know that? Pretty cool. So the Sea of the Galilee receives on one hand and gives out water on the other from the Jordan River. The Dead Sea also gets water from the Jordan River, but it only receives it. It ends with the Dead Sea. It doesn't give it out. And so to receive without giving back, says Rabbi Sachs, is a kind of death, the Dead Sea. Because to live really is to give. Olam chesed yibaneh, the world was built on kindness. 
And there's no tradition that emphasizes this more than Judaism. To be a light onto the nations means that we're sharing, <clears throat> we're giving, we're trying to fix a fractured world, as Rabbi Sachs likes to say in his book, To Heal a Fractured World, great book written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And this is a very, very important idea. Take a look at the end on where it says, Tikkun Olam, Mending the World. Many of you, I'm sure, may not be familiar because when I started doing research on this topic, I did not know that the term Tikkun Olam was also used to refer to something else. This term is mentioned in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition in a few places. I wrote here on your handout on page 6, Gittin, uh, chapter 4, Mishnah 2, uh, also chapter 4, Mishnah 9, uh, chapter 5, Mishnah 3, chapter 9, Mishnah 4, all those uh, um, Gittin is divorce law. And Eidu has to do with testimony. Uh, and the term Tikkun Olam is found in those places. Um, and they refer basically to a number of rabbinic enactments, laws created by the rabbis, which were created to ameliorate certain difficult legal situations in the areas of divorce, freeing of slaves, indentured servants, really, and redemption of captives. Somebody was... Uh, was taken captive. So for example, chapter four in the Tractate of Gittin says not too much, you're not supposed to pay too much to ransom a kidnapped Jew or else unfriendly non-Jews will get into the regular habit of kidnapping them. It's a famous story of the Maharam of Rutenberg, one of the last of the Bali Hatosvos who lived, I forgot when he lived. It might have been in the 1300s or so. Um, and he was captured. And the Jewish community wanted to desperately pay whatever uh, price that his captors had offered. Uh, but he refused to allow himself to be redeemed. Uh, because the Talmud, the Mishnah here, says that if they ask for too much for someone they've kidnapped, it will only encourage people to do more, and therefore you should not do it. A little postscript... Uh, he died in jail as a result, um, and they ended up uh, paying a ransom to get his remains, to be able to bury his remains. Another Tikkun Olam enactment by the rabbis is something called Prusbal. What's a Prusbal? Hillel the sage saw that the rich were refraining from lending to the poor because of a fear that their loans would be canceled during the Shemitah year. The Torah demands that on the sabbatical year after every seven years you have what's called a remission of loans you don't have to pay back a loan that you owe to someone else within the jewish community so rich people who would have otherwise lent poor people money they didn't want to do that because they knew that, 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 that if they didn't get the money back before the shemitah year before the seventh year annual agricultural cycle they would never see their money so hillel the sage devised a legal instrument which would circumvent Shemitah's Ksafim, the Shemitah, and at the same time maintain at least a semblance of adherence to the Halakha. It was also, by the way, intended to help the poor by alleviating the difficulty they had in obtaining loans. Um, it says, actually, that it was an enactment for both the rich and the poor. So the term Tikkun Olam is really used to fix things when there's a problem with something. And, and I'm going to end with this, the term Tikkun Olam is also a phrase used 
in the famous Aleinu prayer that we end all of our prayers with. We say, Letaken olam b'malchut shaddai, which means that we are here to fix the world under the kingdom of God. And, and it's really an expression of the prophetic vision that at the end of days, in the days of the Messiah, all of humanity will acknowledge the one and true God. And our job is to bring that time by uh, tikkun olam. But remember, it's not just tikkun olam for the sake of tikkun olam. Sorry. Remember, it's tikkun olam b'machut shakai. It's tikkun olam for the sake of something greater, for the sake of God. However, the great Kabbalist, the Arizal, used this term um, in one, one last way I'm going to share. Uh, he was a great uh, Makubal, and um, he said if we define God as truly infinite, who before the universe, who, who existed before the universe, right? God was the only being in existence before the world was created. And God's existence completely defines existence, such that there was nothing other than God. So how is there room for the world or for anything other than God? So the Arizal developed the, the idea of Tzimtzum, Rabbi Ezra spoke about this last night, which means contraction or withdrawal. That in order to allow for the creation of something other than God, God retracted or contracted. He withdrew into himself in order to allow for creation. The Hebrew word for the universe and eternity is olam, from the Hebrew root lamed mem, which means hiding or concealment, because only when God is hidden can the universe exist. That's why we live in an, an olam, in a, in a world, because we know that this world, the physical world, God is not apparent, God is hidden. And then there was a second idea, the shvira sakelim, that in making the world, God didn't want to leave it completely devoid of his presence. So he retracted, he withdrew, but he sent out rays of his light, which he held in these vessels. This is all Kabbalah 101. And the light was too intense for the vessels to contain the light, and so they burst, sending out fragments of God's light and spiritual sparks throughout the world. Tikkun olam actually is a Kabbalistic term, used to refer to gathering up those fragments, gathering up those sparks and restoring them to their proper place. The world is filled with broken vessels and sparks and the mitzvot are the ways to restore the broken vessels to their proper place so they can once again contain the divine light. And so therefore every mitzvah we perform enables us to harness the spiritual forces, to metakein, to rectify the spiritual explosion Right, the Big Bang, if you will, which took place at the time of creation. And so Tikkun Olam here has a purely spiritual component, nothing to do with going out and making a difference in the physical world. And I imagine this is how Jews who live a little more insular life fulfill their Tikkun Olam requirement by simply performing mitzvot. Uh, now, I don't personally think that that cuts it. I think the ideal is to do both the physical and the spiritual, but it is important to understand that tikkun olam is not just something we're doing out there. Tikkun olam is something we're doing in here, internally. It's gathering up the sparks of God's holiness and through our mitzvah observance, harnessing those spiritual forces to rectify the original 
big spiritual bang that enabled the world to exist in the very beginning of creation. And I want to use this really uh, to make my last point with, this, with which we will conclude this little mini-series on Tikkun Olam. Because uh, I've tried to demonstrate how bettering the world is central to Judaism. But I want to emphasize how important it is for that good to be tied in to the overall system of Judaism. Being an or lagoyim, a light amongst the nation, is part of something bigger. It's not a religion onto its own. If one does chesed, kindness, even if that person doesn't believe in God or Torah, it's still chesed. It's still kindness because someone has, has been helped. But if that chesed is not rooted in Jewish tradition, then we're not fulfilling our mandate of being a light amongst the nations. To be what we said yesterday, a kingdom of priests, because to illuminate the world, to be the kohanim and the teachers of the world, we must not only help people with their physical needs, we must also carry out our mandate to connect the world spiritually to God. The physical and the spiritual have to go together. And as I said just a moment ago, the words in the Aleinu that we complete our prayers with every day are not just litakein olam, to fix the world, they are litakein olam bilmachut shakai, to fix the world within God's sovereignty. When we truncate the physical from the spiritual, if we embrace only the chesed component, but we reject the religious component, we fail not only to fulfill our mission, to be an or lagoyim, a light amongst the nation, but we fail in two other respects. Number one, the chesed being done now will never be preserved and continue it into the future. Because if you cut it off from the root, the flower will eventually wither and die. And the root of chesed is God and Judaism. If you study history, both ancient and modern, all movements that have latched onto one part of the Torah and ignored another part of the Torah have never lasted. And number two, if you if our chesed or our orla goyim is just for the sake of doing it, and it's not rooted in something higher and greater, if it's letakein olam, but it's not letakein olam b'machut shakai, to fix the world within the kingdom of Hashem, it will be, in my opinion, a little of a fakakt, problematic kind of fixing. The kind of chesed we perform will be unbalanced and distorted. Best example in the Torah was Lot. Lot, because his chesed was not tied into an overall system, he valued chesed, he valued kindness, but not the other many values of Judaism, one of which is sexual morality. And so he, if you remember that crazy story with Lot, was protecting his strangers from this terrible mob, and he was willing to sacrifice his daughter's sexual propriety to do chesed, achnasat ochim, for his strangers that he was harboring in his home. He was in Sodom, and Sodom didn't believe in, in having guests. So he had a chesed, but it was an unbalanced and unhealthy kind of chesed and giving. And so the Jew who does chesed for others, whether it's a fellow Jew or a non-Jew alike, who makes a kiddush Hashem, sanctifies God's name by acting ethically in the workplace, and that same person is seen observing Shabbat, ordering in a kosher meal, running out to a minion in the middle of the day, that is the real deal. Because that demonstrates that the chesed that that person is doing is coming from a higher place because it's part of a larger group of behaviors to which we are dedicated. 
that our ethical conduct is rooted in our Judaism, and then, ultimately, the fellow Jew or non-Jew begins to view God in a more positive light, as we spoke yesterday, and, and, is, and is drawn closer. And then we're in Orla Goyim. Then we're inspiring people not only to do kindness, but to be connected to the source of kindness, to God Almighty who created all of us in His image and who charged us, His special people, to elevate the world with the teachings of His Torah. And that's what we're doing when we do chesed. There's no greater mission and privilege to be God's partner in making the world a better place, both physically and spiritually. And my blessing to all of us is that as we merit, that we should all merit, to live up to this great challenge and to do, in doing so, bring great meaning and purpose. And I'll say one last thing, as again, as a commercial for our discussion tonight with some of the wonderful black leaders that we are privileged to uh, talk to tonight. Ask yourself when you're performing an act of kindness for someone else, how is it helping? Is it helping? Is it making the world a better place? Is it being done in a way that makes the world a better place? Because there's a lot of wonderful um, sentiment out there right now and a lot of very passionate feelings to fix the problem of racism in America, which we must do and be involved in. But it has to be fixed in the right way it cannot be fixed in a way which tramples upon other values that Judaism also holds dear, because in the end, it will destroy an otherwise noble mission and purpose to bring all of our brothers and sisters, Jew and non-Jew alike, under God's divine protection and into a life of equality and compassion and kindness. Olam chesed yibaneh. The world is built on kindness. We need more kindness, we need more love, but we need that love and kindness approached in the proper way. And that's why we have to get involved. Not just so that there's more people involved in the cause, that's important too, but that we can bring our special, unique approach to make sure that the kindness that is brought to all people is brought in the right way, so that it becomes something part of something bigger. And then we will be connected truly to our fellow human being, no matter what their race and ethnicity. And as we're becoming more connected to our fellow human being, we're becoming rooted in the very source of all of us, in God Almighty himself. Thank you all for listening and for being here. We hope to see you tonight and continue to uh, tune in uh, tomorrow um, as well on our uh, uh, Facebook Live page. We also just posted a uh, kind of bittersweet uh, news of, um, but wanted to wish mazel and bracha to uh, my dear uh, close friends, uh, Rabbi Joshua Klein and Sarah Klein, their beautiful children, who are going to be uh, moving uh, out of the city, going back to Sarah's um, hometown in Philadelphia to assume uh, a position with the OU, uh, the Orthodox Union's uh, program on college campus uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we're going to be having a special uh, Zoom session next Thursday night to pay tribute to Rabbi Joshua Klein, a.k.a. Shuki. This is very, very sad for me. Uh, I feel extremely close with Shuki and Sarah and their beautiful family. They actually met at MGE. Um, and uh, we just posted a little letter about uh, their new move in life, and we wish them 
just great, great mazel and bracha. Uh, we love them very, very much, and uh, I look forward and help them look forward to their next chapter in their lives. And we also look forward to bringing up uh, Kevin, Allison, Rabbi Avi, who are going to be having expanded roles at MGE going forward. You'll hear more about this as time comes, but I didn't want to let this go without sharing uh, that news. A little bittersweet. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. We'll see you guys tonight and then tomorrow, rest of the week for lunch and learn. Keep tuning in. We love having you learn with us and um, continue to grow with us and have a wonderful day. Enjoy it. It's beautiful out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.